When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're looking at international trade. The Trump administration's determination to rewrite America's trading relationships is taking shape, with efforts to renegotiate NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Area, beginning this week. And America's also begun to lay out its complaints against China much more explicitly. Joining me to discuss all this is on the line from Washington, Sean Donnan, our trade editor, and here in the studio in London, James King, who's emerging markets editor. Now, Sean, uh, we're talking on Wednesday, and I gather the NAFTA renegotiations such as they are, have actually begun today. Well, that's it. After months of bluster, a couple of years of bluster, if you go back to the campaign, we've finally got the real talks happening. They've sat down here in Washington today, and they started hashing out how to renegotiate this thing. And this is a huge thing. You've got to remember that NAFTA kind of underpins business in a quarter of the global economy. So how do you expect this to proceed? I mean, how long is it going to take, and how radical might the changes be? Bob Lighthizer, who is Donald Trump's top trade negotiator today, has said this is not just about tweaking NAFTA. This is about getting in there and making some sweeping changes to try and reduce, and this is going to be the controversial area, the U.S. trade deficit with Mexico and get a better balance of trade with Canada. So it's complicated. And they want to do it quickly because there's elections in Mexico in July of next year. The government there is in its kind of final stages, and they really want to wrap this up by early next year. That, just to put this in context, doesn't normally happen in trade negotiations. These things normally take years, not months. So what do you think the chances are? I think the chances are really pretty slim that they're going to get this done by early next year. And I think, given the tone, we saw a really tense start to the talks this morning. There's some really tough issues that they have to work through. And I think there's a really good chance that this all breaks down. And that plays into Donald Trump and some of the fears that people have about the potential damage he could do to the U.S. and North American economy. What in the sense that he would then go unilateral if he couldn't get in a deal? He could. I mean, he has talked in April, he raised this possibility of pulling out altogether from NAFTA. And it was only after the U.S. business community in Canada and Mexico scrambled, and actually members of his own cabinet scrambled, that they convinced him to renegotiate this thing. But he's also always held out this possibility that if we don't get the deal that I like, and we know that he likes to emphasize his personal view on these things, that if he doesn't get the deal that is fair for the American worker, then I'm going to pull out anyway. And that would set a kind of six-month clock on negotiations. It would raise uh, the heat incredibly. You'd probably see an, an angry reaction from U.S. business. You'd see some volatility in financial markets. I mean, it really could turn into a big mess. And just how disruptive would it be, though, to American industry? Because, for example, the car industry, which I think is probably the biggest manufacturer in the U.S. still, is deeply integrated through NAFTA, isn't it? So, I mean, if Trump were to say he's pulling out, would that really disrupt the car industry? 
Absolutely. It'd be hugely disruptive. I and mean, there's a trillion dollars in trade that happens between the U.S., Canada, and Mexico. And a big chunk of that is autos. You get parts that are made in Canada that are put into cars that are assembled in Mexico and then sold in the U.S. There's also a huge parts industry in the U.S. that feeds into that and huge, I mean, huge factories. I mean, there's tens of thousands of workers or hundreds of thousands of workers across North America who depend on those supply chains. And those supply chains didn't just pop up overnight. It's taken a quarter century for them to be created. And there's an argument from the U.S. auto industry that this isn't just about North America. This is what we need. We need some low-cost production options in Mexico, and we need the kind of the regional advantage here to compete with car makers coming out of places like China, the Japanese, and also Europe. Well, indeed, and you mentioned China there. So, James, obviously, the NAFTA renegotiation is further advanced, but the US is now being more explicit, isn't it, particularly on the kinds of things it wants to see China do? Yes, the US is now launching a probe into China's policies on intellectual property rights and intellectual property rights abuses, which Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, has said, cost the US about 600 billion US dollars a year in, in his words, theft and expropriation. And it says that China is the main culprit when it comes to this type of theft and expropriation. So in the words of Donald Trump, this is just the beginning. This could be very big. So it sounds as if the US is limbering up for something quite lengthy and quite protracted when it comes to tensions with China over these perceived IPR abuses. And as Sean was saying, on the Mexican stuff, a lot of American industry seems quite wary of of what Trump is doing. But it's my impression that he has more support from the business community when it comes to confronting China over intellectual property. Is that fair? I think that there's a very clear division here. When it comes to China's IPR policies and IPR abuses, I think there is a clear understanding both in Europe and in the US that these are largely justified. The complaints are largely justified. The complaints are, are largely justified. China has a very clear system of encouraging or coercing foreign companies to hand over intellectual property rights technologies to their Chinese partners. It links these implicitly or explicitly to access into the China market. It also has a policy of cherry picking young startups, particularly in the United States, but also in Europe, and paying above market prices for them, and then bring the technology back to China. So There are very clear complaints which are justified. But the second leg of the issue, which is how to deal with this, becomes much more complicated. And the division there is what? The division there is, does the US seek to persuade China, perhaps in cooperation with its European partners, to take a more enlightened policy and to stamp out some of these abuses and to roll back on the policies that force foreign companies to hand over intellectual property? Or does it go the more unilateral route, which would be to invoke something called Section 301? This is a unilateral clause in US law, which would allow the US to just impose tariffs straight on China without any kind of cooperation or collaboration with trading partners, and just to punish China in that way which I think most observers think would immediately lead to a pretty full-on trade war with China. And you obviously follow the Chinese under the story very closely, a former Beijing bureau chief 
How are the Chinese reacting to these threats? Well, at the moment, they're quite circumspect. There have been some newspaper articles saying that this is a very unwise move by the states, but there hasn't been anything really to register on the Richter scale of Chinese outrage. I think this is just a probe at the moment, and by all accounts, it'll take many months, perhaps longer than a year, for the U.S. to collect enough information on this to make a decision as to what type of punitive step to take. But I think if the U.S. was to move towards a Section 301, a kind of unilateral punitive stance, then it's very difficult to imagine that the Chinese wouldn't react. Just to give some context here. The bilateral trade between China and the U.S. is around 650 billion U.S. dollars, so that would be seriously affected. And cumulative bilateral investment is over 300 billion U.S. dollars. And Chinese companies and U.S. companies cooperate all across the supply chain, all over the world. So, if there was a move by the U.S. to take a unilateral stance and impose tariffs on China because of these perceived IPR violations, then I think you could see this ricocheting back through the global supply chain. So, Sean, I mean, in China, as with Mexico, we seem very much to be still in the realms of. Trying to guess how this is all going to play out, and the worst case scenario is obviously that it's a major blow to the global trading system, to globalization. Do you think it will get to that stage? It's really hard to tell. I mean, we're kind of engaged in this daily guessing game and this daily reporting game of just trying to figure out who's winning within the administration. You've got to look at the Trump administration not just as Donald Trump, but also someone who's surrounded by just a huge, probably a bigger variation than we've seen in any other recent U.S. administration in terms of ideology, but an ideological rainbow of aids、uh, from economic nationalists who would love to see nothing more than an all-out trade war with. China to more reasoned, more business-friendly aids there, and the daily game is who's up and who's down, and who is the president listening to, and that's going to be with us for a long time. And it's going to depend some days on the mood of the president. It's going to depend other days on completely unrelated actions by Mexico or China. So, I mean, we're at this point now where the kind of future of the global trading system depends on the vagaries of one man in a way that it just hasn't had before. And James, just on the China front. IP is and intellectual property is obviously the focus of the day, but there've been complaints about all sorts of other things. I mean, for example, the difficulty of repatriating profits, the necessity to often have a Chinese partner, and so on. Do you think that there's more discontent in the Western business world than there has been for some time at the moment? Yes, I think there is, and I think there's a very good reason for that, and that is that China is now moving into the U.S. and Europe's competitive advantage. They're moving into the high technology space in a very clear, very rapid, and very obvious way. And secondary to that, China has a very clear industrial policy now. It's called Made in China 2025, and it sets out very clear targets for import substitution in industries such as semiconductors, artificial intelligence, autonomous vehicles, biotechnology, and several other areas. It says very clearly that Chinese companies—that means Chinese indigenous companies, not multinationals working in China—should have various market shares. In the case of semiconductors, I seem to remember it's about eighty percent by 2025 in a domestic Chinese market. So,、um, is that compatible with WTO rules? Many would say not. 
But I think there are quite a lot of countries around the world that are a bit impatient with the WTO itself because if you take a case to the WTO, it can take years to reach resolution. And this is all moving at warp speed, as you can imagine. China these days is the world's number one manufacturer of renewable and green technologies, for instance. So really, I think the critical moment has come now. It really is a case of whether or not the US and Europe want to protect the commanding heights of the industrial value chain from Chinese competition. And if they really do, and if they really are serious, then, of course, they do need to tackle this intellectual property rights issue. And just to finish with you then, James, I mean, you've been following this issue for a very long time. You wrote a book tacitly, maybe even explicitly questioning how sustainable globalization would be because of the impact that China was having on European and Western industry. And that was, what, 10 years ago now. Do you think, you say we're reaching a crunch point, how do you think it's going to go? Do you think globalization is now so powerful that it's really impossible to imagine it being dismantled? Or do you think the whole thing could unravel? It's a very good question. From the perspective of China, I am afraid I'm not an optimist. And that is because these issues that we talk about are embedded within the Chinese system. And, you know, just this week, we've seen Chinese companies claiming that they take more directives from the Communist Party than they did in the past. We've seen a centralization of economic and political powers by Xi Jinping back into the Communist Party. This is the Chinese system that the US is raising objections about. Chinese industrial policy made in China 2025 is a policy which is approved at all levels of the party and state. So this is not just a trade issue. It's not an issue of a few percentage points here on a tariff. It is an issue of asking China to change its entire industrial approach. Therefore, I'm really not positive that we're going to see much of a shift in China's policy. And just at the time, I guess, that we're talking about the much more obvious to westernize American nationalism, which is reflected in Trump's protectionism, what you're suggesting is there's also a kind of rise in Chinese nationalism. Absolutely. And there's a rising Chinese strength. I mean, China really is ready to take on the best of the West in many of the leading industries in the world. And I think the extent to which this is realized around Western capitals is probably still lagging the reality of what's happening in China. Okay, well, with that thought, we'll leave it for this week. Thanks very much indeed to James King here in London, to Sean Donnan in Washington. That's it for this week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Till next week, goodbye.